This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke 23, we'll be reading this evening verses 39 through 43. This is Luke's account of the crucifixion of our Lord. We read earlier in our readings uh, of the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion as they are described in Matthew's gospel. But now uh, Jesus is crucified, and we pick up our reading in verse 39 with all of the mocking, the jeering taking place. Verse 39, Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The scene is an awful one. Golgotha, the place of the skull. Tradition locates it just outside the city walls of Jerusalem to the northwest. Three men hang bleeding on Roman crosses, their lives now measured in hours, if not minutes. A crowd is gathered around them, and some of the crowd are mocking the man in the middle. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Some of the attending soldiers added to the scorn. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And even one of his fellow sufferers, a criminal, railed at the man to his side. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, the other criminal hanging on Jesus' other side had also been hurling insults, mocking this man hanging between them. And yet he had grown strangely silent, a thoughtful expression discernible on his pain-racked face. And a conversation breaks out among the crucified men. And over the 2,000 years that have followed that conversation. It has comforted many a troubled heart. It has quieted many an aching conscience, and it has wiped away many a deathbed tear. As we think about this conversation that took place in this most unlikely 
of uh, locations. I want us to think about several lessons that, that flow out of these words. Lesson one is this. Christ saves people who acknowledge their need of him. Christ saves people who acknowledge their need of him. Now, in these verses, we see that Jesus truly is, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 63, mighty to save. After all, could any case have looked more hopeless? Could any case have looked more desperate than this thief on the cross? Think about it. He was an evil man. Text describes him as a criminal. Literally, he was an evil doer. Matthew is more specific when he says that the man is a thief, and he may have been guilty of other crimes. In fact, probably was guilty of other crimes as well, because Rome didn't crucify just anybody. Rome reserved that heinous method of execution for the worst malefactors in society and for those whom it deemed to be a threat to the rule and to the good order of Rome. The fact that this man was being crucified tells us something about the kind of man he was. He was not only an evil man, he was a dying man. His deathbed was a wooden beam stuck upright in the ground to which he was nailed. And next time he touched the ground, it would be when they placed him in his grave. And so he knew that eternity was mere moments away. Now, if ever a man seemed lost, hardened, beyond recovery, it was he, this thief on a cross. If ever a man hung like Jonathan Edwards' spider dangling over the open maw of hell, it was this miserable, crucified thief. But see what happened. This man, whom Matthew and Luke both tell us had joined the other criminal in mocking Jesus between them, he began to speak in a different manner. Now, the first criminal continued to abuse Jesus, but this man rebuked him. He said, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then he says something here utterly magnificent. And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He acknowledges here Jesus' innocence. That this man hanging on a cross between them did not deserve to be there. But then he acknowledges something almost as stupendous. And that is his own guilt. The fact that he was getting exactly what he deserved. I understand from those who were involved in such things that very often criminals will, to the end, maintain their innocence. Even if found guilty, even if they are guilty, they will maintain their innocence or they will plead extenuating circumstances. They will excuse, they will rationalize, they will explain away their guilt. But this man didn't do that. He acknowledges his own guilt. Now, it's obvious in the case of this man, there's no question. Maybe it's not so obvious with us. Maybe our sins, our misdeeds, our evil doing, uh, those are not so obvious in our lives as they are with this man. Maybe more refined, but the fact remains that like this man, you and I have violated God's law. You don't even live up to your own standards. How could you claim to have lived up to God's? 
you know and I know, and the Bible tells us that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God and we all stand guilty before Jesus, who himself was innocent. You see, it's only when we, like this man, reach a place of honesty about ourselves, honesty about our rebellion against God, our waywardness, our sin, that we're in a position position ready to believe in Jesus, that we see the need for his innocence in the place of our guilt. No excuses, no alibis, no rationalizing, no explaining away, but saying, like this man, I'm guilty. And I deserve all of the judgment, not just Rome, but the judgment of God. I need a Savior. I need a substitute. That's the first lesson that we find here. The second lesson is that Christ saves people who call on him in faith, who not only acknowledge their need, their sinfulness, but who then call on Jesus in faith. And this man says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Striking, isn't it? Think about the faith required to say that. He was saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, when you become a king, when you begin to reign to a man who is slowly bleeding to death beside him on a cross. That's faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what would Jesus say to such a man? Some might say, well, the man's too wicked to be saved, but it was not so. Some might say it was too late for the man to be saved, but that too was not so. It was not too late at all, because Jesus, hearing this man's plea for mercy, answers him immediately and certainly. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, in that one statement, Jesus yanked him from the clutches of hell. He pardoned him of his guilt. He cleansed him of his sin, and he received the man to himself Completely. Think about it. No one who has ever been saved has received a more certain and glorious assurance of the reality of his salvation than did this thief on the cross. He heard it from the man himself. And so here we stand amazed at the Lord's power to save. When Jesus was most weak, he was still a strong deliverer. When his body was most racked with pain, he still felt compassion and pity for others. When he himself was dying, he gave eternal life to one who trusted in him. So don't ever think that you're so bad, that you're so wicked, that you've done so much that Jesus cannot save you when you call in faith on him. And don't think that that person you love is so far gone, is so confirmed in sin, is so set in his or her wickedness that Jesus in his might cannot save that person for whom you care and for whom you pray. Jesus saves the sinner who calls on him in faith. But the reality is that not all do. Remember, there were two thieves crucified there with Jesus that day. Why was one saved and the other apparently not? Well, both men were obviously wicked. Both were receiving their due penalty. Both were crucified beside Jesus. Both had front row seats to the most most earth-changing event in human history. 
Front row seats, right there. Both heard Jesus pray for forgiveness for those who murdered him. Both saw him suffer patiently. But one repented. The other remained hardened. One began to pray while the other went on mocking. One became a believer in Jesus while the other died as he lived, cursing God. One entered paradise on that day. The other entered hell. How do you account for that? The only answer for that is God's sovereign grace. That God saves whom he will. That God opens the eyes of some while others remain closed. Opens the ears of others to hear while others remain closed. And so we see in this a warning. A warning against presuming. These verses warn us that though some may repent and be saved, even on their deathbed, others will not. They warn us that two people may have the same opportunities of receiving salvation. They may see and hear the same things, and yet only one takes advantage of them, repents and believes, and is saved. They warn us that true repentance and faith are gifts of God and not something that we work up within ourselves or not something that are given to us by certain environments or circumstances. If you think you can repent when you want to and seek the Lord when you please, if you think you can live for him in this world as long as you like, living for yourself in sin, and then at the last moment turn to him and be saved, this thief who died in his hardened, with his hardened heart serves as a warning. You may be surprised You may find that like this impenitent thief, impenitent thief, you die mocking God. Who knows, but that that gospel that now seems so clear may tomorrow seem vague. Who knows, but that what now seems so compelling may seem tomorrow to be but a matter of slight interest at best. Who knows? but that those gospel seeds that lie on your heart tonight might be snatched away by that that evil bird, Satan, tomorrow. So don't trifle with the gospel. Don't presume on God's grace. Don't waste an opportunity when the things of Christ become clear to you. Your friend, flee to Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe in him. Trust in him. Throw yourself upon him, trusting in nothing you've done and nothing you are, but in Christ alone. Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. Tomorrow, the things of Christ may be fuzzy and vague. God gives you an opportunity, when you see Christ crucified, to believe in him. As a believer in a bygone age, once put it, one thief was saved that none should despair, and only one that none should presume. Third and final lesson, Christ saves people not only who acknowledge their need, see their sin, not only those who call on Christ in faith, but also Christ saves people to be with him In heaven, notice Jesus' answer, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the man was going to die soon. Of that, there was no question. 
That's a given. And there was no question where he would be when he died. Through his faith in Jesus, who was in the very act of dying for that man and atoning for his sins, along with all others who would believe in him, that man would be with him in heaven. You see, the Christian, the Bible gives us only two options. You are either here or you are with Christ. The Apostle Paul says it is better to be with Christ, that he desires to depart and be with Christ. That was his personal preference, but it was of benefit to the church that the Lord keep him here on earth. But his desire was to be with Christ. But those are the only two options, here, living here for Jesus, or living in heaven with Jesus, awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there is mystery here. We don't know what it will be like to live in that intermediate state, a disembodied spirit, a disembodied soul. And it is an intermediate state. The Christian's ultimate hope is not that our soul goes to heaven even while our body is in the ground. Our ultimate hope is the return of Christ, the resurrection of our bodies, glorified to be reunited with our glorified soul to live forever in the new heavens, new earth. The whole universe redeemed and restored and cleansed and made new by Jesus. But there is, until Christ comes back, that intermediate state for those who have died in the Lord, to be with the Lord in heaven. And it is mysterious, but two things we do know about that condition. One, we will be happy. Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Now, the Greek term in its basic sense refers to a garden. In fact, in the the old Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word used to the Garden of Eden. It refers to a garden. It occurs three times in the New Testament, here, of course, and also in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul describes himself being caught up into paradise, and then again in Revelation 2-7, where Jesus says to the church at Ephesus that the one who overcomes will be granted to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In fact, the Greek word is our English word, basically, paradisos, is paradise. Uh, But we think of the word paradise, and it conveys a place of beauty, a place of life, a place of peace, a place of rest. And that's exactly what Jesus promises to this thief who dies in the Lord and to all of us who die in the Lord, that we will be in a place where we'll be immeasurably happy and content. But the second thing we know is true is that we will be with Jesus We will be conscious of him. We will be aware of being with him. We will be in glory with Jesus. Today you will be with me in paradise. And it is the presence of the Lord ultimately that makes paradise paradise, that makes heaven heaven to be in the presence of God himself. And as the psalmist tells us, in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so, as we study this passage, the lessons that Christ saves those who acknowledge their need of him, those who call on him, and he saves those who call on him to be with him in glory forever. An awful scene, Golgotha, the cross, and yet even in that darkness, perhaps especially in that Darkness, the light of the grace of God shines brightly. Here, the Son of Man made atonement for sinners. Here, a brand was plucked from the fire. Here, we do indeed see the power of the cross. For a dying thief, for you, for me. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Gave himself for this thief, someone whom Rome had hung on a cross for his crimes against humanity. And yet, Lord, in your grace, changing his heart at the last moment to cry out for salvation. Father, we pray that it might be before our last moment that you would save us now. We praise you, those of us who have experienced your salvation, that we might live the days that you give us between now and that day you call us home for your glory, for the building of your church, for the spread of the gospel in the world. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his cross. Father, we recognize it was in our place, condemned, he stood. We pray it in his name. Amen.